Zakish, in rapt attention, sat before the apostle. Occasionally he would shudder with excitement as Peter's teaching made clear. He had walked with Jesus. This one had slept under the stars with the Son of God. He had eaten lunch with him. And now he was quoting, once again, words actually spoken by the mouth of the Messiah. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. As he went on, Zacchaeus struggled to focus. The wonder of this new life overwhelmed his young mind. He had not yet reached twenty, and still he was being taught by one of the twelve. Most of his days were here in Solomon's colonnade with hundreds, sometimes thousands of others. But he also had the pleasure of serving the apostles. Anything they needed done, he eagerly sought to do. It was hard to let the other young men have a turn. And all their needs were supplied by the generosity of others. People would bring food and clothing and money and simply give it to the apostles to distribute as needed. Zacchaeus himself had carried many a meal to the widows. Their gratitude overwhelmed him. The apostles' thanks motivated him. Oh God, is there not something more that I can do for you? He longed to have possessions so that he could sell them and give all in service of the Lord, the risen one. Many had sold all they had and given to the work. Just last week, Joseph sold a field and gave all the money to Peter. Everyone heard about Peter's smile, how the apostles had said Joseph encouraged them like the prophets did, that he was like them. And so they gave him a new name, Barnabas, son of encouragement. seemed like everyone was calling him Barnabas now. And Joseph's response made them understand. He always played down his role and said the same thing that Zacchaeus thought. I only wish I could do more. His humility was breathtaking. Never did he seem proud or really even pleased that people gave him honor. He wanted all the attention to be on Jesus. In fact, he always turned whatever praise came his way to the one who truly deserved it, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again so that he might have eternal life. Everything that he could do would never be enough to repay his debt. Truly, Barnabas deserved the honor that the apostles, indeed, all the believers gave him. In fact, just last night, in another long discussion under the stars, Zacchaeus and his friends decided that they wanted the honor that Barnabas received so that they too could give it back to Jesus. So they prayed for an hour that they should be able to serve their Lord in such a way. Peter was finishing his comments on Jesus' teaching about discipline. He had pointed out the church's role, and now he finished by quoting the Lord again. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Heaven agreed with the church's decision on discipline? As Zacchaeus and the others pondered this overwhelming thought, someone approached Peter and whispered in his ear as he pointed towards one of the columns. Zacchaeus followed his gesture and saw Ananias standing there. He was holding what appeared to be a large bag of money. Zacchaeus wondered what was happening. He looked back and saw Peter nod towards Ananias. As Ananias walked towards the apostles, he loudly announced, I have sold our property and have brought everything to you. He named the figure and all the crowd gasped and began to praise the Lord. Zacchaeus wanted to give Ananias praise so that he could offer it to the Lord. But when he looked at him, there was something not right. Ananias beamed with pleasure. Not at all like Barnabas. What was this that was happening? In his confusion, Zacchaeus looked where he always did for answers to the apostle. He was shaken by what he saw. 
Peter's face was sternly set. If it were possible, one might say his expression was hard. Would it be fair to say judgmental? Others must have seen it too, for the noise of the crowd rather suddenly was absorbed into a deadly quiet. Ananias began to fidget and then nervously placed the bag at Peter's feet. When he stood up, he looked again into Peter's eyes and then down. He tried to look again, but he could not hold his gaze. As Zacchaeus looked towards Peter, he suddenly realized what it was that he had detected in his countenance, something he had never seen there before. Sadness. A deep, hurting sadness. Even though he spoke softly, the quiet was so complete that it was easy to hear Peter's words. Ananias. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? It was murmuring throughout the crowd and Ananias furtively looked here and there all about him. Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? The blood drained from Ananias' face till all the color was gone. He was trapped in his own guilt. Peter's voice gained intensity. It was something like pleading, something like accusing. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? There was no answer. And Peter pronounced his doom. You have not lied to men, but to God. Zacchaeus had no idea what would happen next, but what did happen was clearly not what anyone in the crowd expected. Everyone gasped as Ananias collapsed and died where he stood. The key sat in shock. What had just happened? Peter motioned to the leader of the young men and soon Zacchaeus found himself assisting in carrying Ananias' body out. As they waited to arrange the purchase of the tomb, he asked himself, why? Why had Ananias been struck dead? Wasn't God supposed to show mercy now? Hadn't Jesus died for our sins? Were heaven and Peter agreeing? Did Ananias have to die? They had secured the tomb and now were wrapping the body, placing the spice packets as they wound around and around. They passed the shoulders. It was time to put the head cloth in place. As he took his last look at Ananias' face, the quiche remembered the look on Peter's face. It was so different than anything he had ever seen before. Before, it was all excitement, fervor, joy often intense, but never, ever stern, hard, cold, sad, like it was when Peter confronted Ananias with his deception. It was cold here. They had rolled the stone away from the entrance, and now they were laying the body on one of the shelves carved into the walls. Jesus had been laid in a tomb not unlike this. They rolled the stone back and began to seal around it to keep the smell of death inside. But could Ananias rise from this tomb as Jesus did from his? Since they had touched the dead, they had to take their ritual cleansing baths. People were looking at them and whispering all around. Obviously, word had gotten out. Why did Ananias have to die? He was still wondering as they approached the door through which they would enter the colonnade. But now the people were looking back and forth between them and the door. Something was happening inside. Zacchaeus was toward the front and he tried to push his way through the crowd to get back where he could be safe again. He could hear Peter's voice, but it was too low to catch the words. Just as he reached the door, he heard another voice. It made him stop dead in his tracks. It was Sapphira. She was agreeing that Ananias and she had sold the property for the same figure Ananias had claimed. 
Zacchaeus' heart was in his throat. Fear froze him in place. Then he heard Peter's voice. It had the same intense tone of finality. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Zacchaeus' whole body shook and he forced himself through the door. He pressed forward, straining to see through the people. Finally, he reached the front and right where her husband had placed the money lay Sapphira, dead. The feet of his teacher, the one who had walked with Christ, were in his vision. But he did not want to look up at his face. He had thought he understood, but Peter had announced the doom of this woman too. Did he really know Peter? Did he really know the message? The message of hope, the message of life. But as if against his will, his eyes did travel upward. He reached Peter's face. The apostle was gazing at Sapphira. The sternness was gone. There was a tear running down his cheek. The quiche knew his young mind was not capable of understanding. They went through the same motions of burial for Sapphira as they had for her husband. Slowly, gradually, the reactions of those around them began to register to his senses. There was something new in the way the people treated them. The quiche had long understood that this new thing, this church, was a special work of God. As he gave more and closer attention to the non-believers who were around him, he began to understand what it was that had changed. They were afraid, in awe of them, the followers of Jesus. And a tiny light began to shine in his mind. This work wasn't just a special work of God. It was his work in the world. This church was God's plan. Jesus came to establish the church and he would protect it. He would keep it pure. The church would bring him honor. As the quiche laid Sapphira's body next to her husband's, he understood. The church was to bring honor, glory to Jesus. And that honor, that glory, must not be tainted. I tried in this little story to give you a look at the odd, odd narrative of Ananias and Sapphira in maybe a new way through the eyes of one of the young men as he might have seen it. So that makes us ask, how should we look at this incredible happening? It's quite a question. This event that is recorded in the Holy Scriptures, this actually happened. I think there are five things that we should consider. The disposing of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter's pain. The response of those outside the church. The purity of the church. And last the message God has for us. Quite a story. Alright, you ready? Disposing of Ananias and Sapphira. First, what happened here? Simply put, this is Satan's first attempt, and certainly not his last, to introduce impurity into the church. And of course, it's also God's answer. But to know why they died, I mean, wouldn't we have to know what drove Ananias? Clearly, money was an issue. The church was free with their money. Ananias, not so much. He only gave a part of it, which would have been okay if, if he'd been honest. 
Why give any of the money at all? Maybe he was hoping for more business from the church, from the people in the church. This was a sort of advertisement for him. Maybe. I don't think so, though. Why give any of the money? (laughs) Well, think about what he did wrong. His sin was that he pretended to give everything. When in fact, he was only half in, as it were. And half in, well, we know how that never works. <laughs> so what was the point of giving it all? Was he looking for approval, for honor? Big deal. Honor is a big deal in that culture. And, and the truth is, we do that too. You know, we lie rather than suffer the pain of rejection. Somebody says, can you believe he did that? And knowing we've done the exact same thing, we say, oh no, wow, really? <laughs> or we concoct half-truths to be honored. Yeah, I did that really important thing. Uh, when really that's pressing it. We act like we own something really cool when in fact we just kind of touched it in the store. Or I know this really important person. Actually, we just saw them across the street one day. <laughs> i got to tell you a joke. This group of guys work together. And they're Catholic, so they're in the bar after work. <laughs> and they're all talking, and they're irritated by this. One, one of them's particularly irritated with this guy, Schultz, that they work with. Schultz. Every, you talk about anybody, Schultz knows him. It doesn't matter who it is, you talk about him. Oh, yeah, yeah, we met there. We know, he always knows everybody. Drives him crazy. So pretty soon, Schultz comes walking in the door. And the guy can't take it anymore. He says, so Charles, talking about the governor. Suppose you know him. He says, oh, yeah, yeah, Jay and I, we went to school together. Yeah, right. I don't believe you. He says, no, no, really, we, we know each other. And he explains the circumstances. And the guy says, here, hands him his phone. He says, oh, here, I got his number on my phone. So Charles pulls up his phone, pulls it up. One of the guys looks, Jay Inslee, pushes the button, pushes it. Pretty soon he hears his voice. Hey, hey, Charles, how you doing, man? We haven't talked forever. And they talk, and they start talking about something. He's like, wow, that's... They hang up and the guy says, yeah, well, you, you said you knew the president once. I don't think you really knew Trump. Well, yeah, there was this business deal I was involved in and with his son. And, you know, we kind of, you know. No, I don't. Really, I'm honest. He said, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, huh? I'm going to call him too. He says, well, actually, i got a call. He's got a call into me because we're doing this other thing. And I was supposed to answer for his son. I guess I can give him a call and answer that question real quick. And they said, <laughs> Right. So he picks it up, pretty soon, White House, yes, okay, yes, we'll get him, yeah. Pretty soon he's on the the Trump. Hey, Charles, how you doing? Hi, Mr. President, good, you know, you were asking me, and he goes to, he knew the president, can't believe it. This guy, this is amazing. Well, they're Roman Catholic. And one guy says, you know, you're irritating, living day, it's out of me, Charles, and I'm going to tell you this. He said, uh, I've been going to go to Rome for a long time, and audience of the Pope, I always wanted to go to the Vatican and do that. So now I've been saving up money, and there's, I know that there's one in about two months. And he said, uh, I, I, he says, no, wait, no, wait, I, I know, he said, yeah, I know I, I have met, and I don't want you to, he says, no, I'm going to pay for everybody. We're all going to, I'm going to pay for it. He says, really, no, I can't take your money because I do know him. And he says, no, no, because you don't really know him, and we're going to get there, and, and when we get there and we prove that you don't know him, you have to pay for everybody. That's the deal. You've got to pay for every, every tip. Every meal, the airline tickets, the hotel, you gotta pay for everything unless you know the Pope. He says, look, I really do, and if you, you know, you're gonna lose your money. He says, no, 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 I had it saved. We're going. I'm gonna prove it. I've had it with you. So the time goes by and they fly to Rome and they tour the city and they go through everything and pretty soon the day comes for the audience of the Pope. So they all go. 
over to there and they go into the big courtyard where the Pope shows up in the balcony up above you and all that. And all of a sudden, Charles says, excuse me, guys, and he walks off. What does he do? The guy says, he's just trying to not be here so he can say, oh, well, he didn't get to see me. So he's just trying to... They all get down there and they're all standing there and pretty soon the music goes and all this and pretty soon the curtains open up and here comes the Pope out with Charles standing next to him with his arm around his shoulder. They can't believe it. Of course, from Charles' viewpoint, what he did was he went to meet him ahead of time. He was just going to say a few words to him, get something for his friends to, you know, Pope would give him and that. But the guy, they got to talk and then pretty soon he ran, oh, i got to go out. Well, why don't you just come out with me? And so Charles went out there. So Charles is looking down and he sees his guys. He goes to wave and one of the guys collapses. And he's, oh, no. So he excuses himself and he runs and he finds him in the infirmary and he says, man, didn't you believe me when I said to know the Pope? Oh, I give up. You know the Pope. You know everybody. I don't. It wasn't that. He said, what was it? Well, it was when this Italian guy behind me saying, said, hey, who's that up there with Schultz? <laughs> Some people do seem to know everybody, but I don't. So sometimes, you know, we kind of spin the truth a bit to make us look good. And, and I wonder, was that what Ananias was doing? Was he hoping for influence or power? Well, we're not told. <laughs> Scripture doesn't say. And I think that's on purpose. See, it doesn't matter what excuse we make. <laughs> wrong is wrong. That's just the deal. You heard that saying, never mess up a perfectly good apology with an excuse. I don't know if you heard that. Well, never mess up a perfectly good repentance with an excuse. <laughs> you did wrong, just confess it and stop there. And that's, that's kind of Ananias. Well, what about Sapphira? Wasn't she just trying to follow her husband? Why should she get in trouble for that? I mean, isn't the man supposed to be the head of the household? And okay, so let's grant that's true. Head of the household. It's not an excuse for sin. <laughs> and Sapphira is being held responsible independently from her husband's actions was actually a unique thought at that time back at the beginning of the Israeli nation, an impure action by one man caused a major problem for the entire nation. It's in Joshua 7, if you want to read it. The man was killed, and so was his wife, and all of his children, and all of his livestock, and all of his possessions. Everything and everyone was burned and buried. Everything. With him. And that was common practice in all societies before the time of Christ. The man led the family. If he was guilty, they were all counted as guilty. There wasn't any independence there. It's an important side note. But don't let that bother you too much. Because God, God's got everything. He, this life is nothing compared to eternity. And he's really got it all in control. It's all going to be all right. But back to Sapphira. What about Sapphira? Her responsibility demonstrates her freedom. As Paul later wrote, when it comes to salvation, each person, each man, and each woman are independently responsible and able to accept salvation. So she's responsible. Uh, what were Sapphira's reasons? Doesn't matter. <laughs> Just like her husband, no excuse will do. We must all individually do right. Period. You don't get a pass because you're a woman. Or because your boss told you to, or because everyone else is doing it. Uh, we bring God pain every time we sin. And do we really want to do that? Well, this was, as we said, Satan's first attempt to infiltrate the church. He had already 
tried direct opposition. It didn't work. (laughs) Peter and the other apostles handled it with aplomb. So how did Peter handle this issue? Peter had been given the power to do miracles. He had stood up with John against the Sanhedrin. He had preached. We do mean preached. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Everything was going fantastically. Everyone in the church trusted them. They even gave them all their money. And now this. And you've had this happen to you. I mean, really. Everything's going great. And then your child steals from you. Or you discover your employee or partner is missing along with all the cash. Or you catch your best student cheating on an exam. You find out someone you thought you could trust betrayed you, deceived you, cheated you, hurt you. Understand that Peter was intensely affected. Our English translations simply say that Ananias held back some of the money, which of course is accurate. But Luke uses a rare Greek word for embezzle. Ananias embezzled for himself part of the proceeds. Well, wait, I thought it was his. How can he embezzle what's his? And you're correct. But I believe what Luke was trying to help us understand is how strongly Peter was repulsed by Ananias' actions. Peter and the Holy Spirit. But don't forget that Peter did have a choice here as well. He could have said nothing. Oh well, you know, let's just let God take care of it. We didn't. <laughs> Peter could have, but what would Ananias and Sapphira's deaths have meant then? Pretty much nothing. In fact, they might have hurt the church's witness. But Peter did do the right thing. He did confront them. I wonder if maybe, maybe when we are betrayed or deceived or cheated, when we are hurt. Maybe we need to confront the person like Peter did. And what did God do when he did? He gave him an even greater witness. Even the miracles he did became more amazing so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered into the, from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. Jesus had told them they would do even greater things and now they were seeing it happen. And wow, were they seeing it happen. People were being healed by his shadow. (laughs) Wow. And all because, even though it must have been difficult, even frightening, Peter did what he was supposed to do. Peter confirmed God's judgment. And God blessed him and the church. Ah, but what about those outside... People have an image of the ideal. A perfect society in which everyone shares freely so that there are no poor and there are no needy. That never really happens. Communism doesn't work. Socialism doesn't work. It doesn't really work. But it actually did here. It was actually realized in the church. And then an impurity comes in. A virus attacks the body. And that sickness is decisively removed with surgical precision. So what's the reaction of those outside? First, fear. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Then Sapphira dies, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Great fear. 
why do some Christians try to get non-believers to even become members of the church organization when they're not part of the church organism? I mean, would they do so if they knew it could lead to their death? Those outside the church ought to be afraid of exposure in the church. They have sin that they are still guilty of. They haven't confessed it. They have not given it to Christ. They have not committed their lives to Him. The outsiders of Peter's time knew enough not to join them without committing. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. They wanted what the believers had, the ideal. They were impressed by it. But they didn't want to pay the price of admission. They didn't want to commit their lives to Christ. Even if He would take all their sins on Himself. But not to worry. There were many who did take the plunge, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord's multitudes of both men and women. When we in the church live pure lives and confront those who will not, then others who want this purity will join us. God will grow his church when the church is fully committed to live as he was. But alas, many of the people of Peter's time, maybe most, did not believe. And some became violent. The high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Arrested again. And the second time was much more severe. They were beaten. But not to worry. God used this to strengthen his church as well. But we discussed their being boldly independent back on July the 4th. For us this week, we need to remember what Paul later wrote. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. Obviously, there was an issue, and that's why he had to make it up. But those outside the church know this is true. I think perhaps it's time the church acted like it's true. Peter would later write, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The purity of the church is important even today. Maybe especially today. But what does it mean? What will God do to achieve it? And what happens when the church is pure? And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done by the people by the hands of the apostles. Among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Four things happen when the church is pure. First, a proper awe of God and his purity will pervade the church. And the world will be awed as well. Next, the ministry will be effective. And that day, that meant signs and wonders. It was before the New Testament was written. And, and those Jews were specially prepared to understand the miracles in God's place in them. So miracles today aren't so much the deal. Uh, today, it means we will effectively speak and show in our lives Christ to the world. And we will have unity. They were all together in Solomon's particle. doesn't just mean they were there physically. We will be together in heart and actions for the Lord. And last, the church will grow. This church will grow. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The message. What's our message here today?
Why did the church have to be pure? Because the church has a message. A message that must be clearly spoken. A message that is most clearly spoken by a pure church. And don't worry, God will get it done. Back then, in just a few more days, the apostles will be arrested again, and an angel will tell them, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And what was true before, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, will be amplified many times. And the disciples will once again present their accusers with this message. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To give repentance to Israel, of which they were a part, and forgiveness of sins, which no one needed more than they did. How eager are we to proclaim the message of the resurrection power of Jesus to the world around us? What will we be willing to do and to give and to give up to tell this story? What are we willing to let God amputate from our lives to be pure so we can best give this truth to those outside? Eternal life or death hangs in the balance. Is that important to you? It's interesting to note that we can't tell whether Ananias and Sapphira were believers or not from Luke's text. If they were not, then it's clear the young church could not carry the weight of hypocrisy, so God removed it. Frankly, I don't think the church can bear it now, not if the message is to be given effectively. But what if they were believers? And a great number of theologians, maybe the majority, think that they were believers. If they were, then Ananias was trying to be a Christian but keep one foot in the world. Why would a Christian do that? Why have a backup plan to the point of lying when God is on your side? Because he really doesn't trust God. Ananias kept some of the money just in case God didn't come through. If he was truly a believer. Why would Sapphira follow her husband into what she knew was a wrong action? Because she didn't really trust God. (laughs) She figured she needed her husband for security. Just in case God didn't come through. I know, ladies, you know it well in particular. The young ladies in America need to hear this. The young women need to hear this. You don't need a man in your life to be okay. You only need God. Same, of course, is true for men. We really only need God. But that was for them, right? Uh, This killing people to keep the church pure, that was only for them, right? During the Civil War, there were no drugs to stop gangrene. To save a soldier's life, they had to cut off their damaged and infected limbs. But that was then, right? Well, sometimes even today, people have to have a limb amputated to stay alive. Listen to what Paul wrote about communion years after Ananias and Sapphira were buried. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Uh, If you come in and callously take communion without even considering your sin, refusing to take care of sin, impurity, in our lives, means we're guilty considering the body and blood of Christ. 
Whoa. <laughs> I believe this still happens today. Eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. If someone is in the church but will not live as they know they should, they will have trouble. I'm going to tell you a true story. I know a pastor. A pastor who refuses to give anything to the church that pays his salary. Nothing. Zero. I mean, forget it. Tithe. He gives nothing to that church. His car, a brand that is renowned for its trouble-free vehicles, has had to have the transmission replaced twice. He's had to have a new fuel pump installed, an alternator, a heater. His tires have blown out way before they should. And a number of other things has happened to that vehicle. Oh, come on, Rick. God wouldn't do that. He wouldn't allow such a thing. Okay? His furnace died in his house. The roof started leaking and it's almost new. When they were on vacation, they lost a bunch of money. <laughs> and there's more. It goes on and on. Financially, their life is a wreck. And I've, I've changed some of the details because some people who might hear this message... They know this man. And this is just money. It could be worse. John wrote, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. And I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. For a believer. God does discipline those who are his who will not live as he instructs. He goads them to try to get them to move in the right direction. May even knock them to the ground. And if they still will not listen, if they have no value to the church or in proclaiming the power of the resurrection, in fact, or may be detrimental to the church, he may simply take them home. Uh, their work will be done here. By the way, don't worry. <laughs> he will then make them pure. They'll be all right. They'll be better than all right. But do you begin to see the advantage of confronting someone in deep love, confronting someone sinning a sin, not leading to death? So maybe we gird up our loins and confront. What if we do? What if we do that and listen? God has done some purifying in this little church through its history. Some of it I've been through and it's been painful. It made me sad. But we must trust Him. I mean, we got a long, long ways to go until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Yeah, we got a long ways to go. And until we actually attain that end, we've got to do the best we can you know, to be pure. So each of us, together and individually, living as God instructs us. Telling of the resurrection and living out the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Until that glorious day when he will come for us. And we will, all, all of us, finally be made Perfectly pure. Can you imagine that? Ah, perfectly pure. It's pretty exciting stuff all by itself. Mm. Well, Father, thank you. That story of Ananias and Sapphira, wow. <laughs> Who
who puts that kind of thing in the Bible? I'm amazed that you have it in there. It's just such an astonishing story. So jarring to us. It seems so odd that two people who apparently were believers apparently actually are with you now. <laughs> and yet, they sinned to the point where you you actually took them home. That's strange. Hmm. Well, the message for us, we want to we wanna do as well as we can. And we know, we know we're none of us going to make it a day. Are you kidding? We're not going to make perfect purity by any stretch of the imagination. But help us, Lord, to move that way. And if you bring someone into our lives that is making a mistake and isn't doing something about it, and isn't trying to correct, help us, Lord, to... If that's what we're supposed to do, we need to be careful, but help us to to stand up and talk to them. That's got to be the most difficult thing that can be done. (laughs) But help us, Lord, to do right that way, too. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray.